And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. I have my good friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you doing today, Pam? I'm doing excellent as usual. I'm looking outside and I see clouds and a little blue peeking through, but lots of snow. We got pretty lucky with the snow, didn't we? We certainly did, and it was nice that it happened on the weekend and not in the middle of a weekday rush hour. It always seems to happen at the wrong time. Yeah, we were very lucky, and I got to tell you, I was down in Ottawa, and we only got like maybe two inches, maybe three at the most, so when I came home up back up here and saw all the snow, I thought, oh, it's nice to live down south there. Yeah, I think uh, Ottawa was the place to be apparently over the weekend. (laughs) I've been hearing a lot that uh, numbers are getting a little bit better in the area, so how are they looking at uh, the hospital? So there's holding studies. Last week we had 35 positive patients with two on vents and two awaiting results and this week we're at 36 positive patients with two on vents and four awaiting results. Last week we had 158 deaths. This week we're up to 162 deaths. Last week uh, DuPage County had 71,323 positive patients. This week DuPage County has 72,610 positive patients. Deaths last week we're 1,179 in DuPage County, this week 1,196, and the state went from 1,100,000 positive patients to 1,130,000 positive patients, and dust went from 20,853 to 21,273. So when we go to the good news, we went from 1,374 discharges to 1,416 discharges, so that's a lot of discharges in one week, and we remain at a 97% recovery rate throughout the state. So the actual numbers inside the hospital are pretty flat compared to last week, it seems, but overall, it's certainly an improvement. You know, I was looking back over the last 10 months or so, and I noticed that um, on uh, May 5th, you were you had a pretty high census of COVID patients, at least for that time period, of 66 patients. And then on September 1st of last year, you were down to two patients. Then the spike happened again kind of in the fall, and you were up to 84 patients on November 17th when we talked. So my question is, do you think that people being inside in the colder weather led to the increase in the fall? Well, first of all, I don't remember being down to two patients in September, so I would have to go back and double-check that. I don't remember being down to two patients since we started this, so that would be a surprise to me. Um, maybe I said something wrong back then, but I want to go back and double-check on that. But your question about the colder weather and, and being indoors causing the spike, I would say it was being indoors and not being outside when you did your gatherings because where we saw the trends were people who had family gatherings indoors, sports teams that were indoors, and like people had to go on with life, so there were small intimate weddings that were indoors, and a lot of those led to COVID outbreaks. So I do think the colder weather and moving indoors was a factor. 
And do you think that the fact that you've got so much more knowledge on how to treat COVID patients right now has made your recent high patient mark of 84 um, a lot lower than it would have been otherwise? In other words, with the knowledge that you've gained over this pandemic, don't you think that 84 patients that you had in November would have been even a lot higher? Absolutely. So if we had had um, not learned what we learned, our length of stay for patients would have been longer and our patients would have gotten sicker and more of them would have been in intensive care. And if you, if you thought about that, with 84 was much higher than any we had from March to May, even with the long length of stays. So there was a bigger number of people who had hospitalizations for COVID during this fall and fall and early winter time period, but their length of stay was shorter because of the treatments we learned and they didn't need to be in the intensive care as often because of the treatments we learned. So when you hear how many people actually were discharged and how many people passed, those number of people would have been in the hospital and we wouldn't have been able to handle it. We wouldn't have had enough beds for everything. That's uh, that's pretty much what I figured, and uh, it kind of scares me when I think about that. And um, I thank God that that uh, we know so much more. We, like I'm part of, we I'm not, but the medical community knows so much more about how to treat these COVID patients than they did early on. One of the areas that is so confusing to people, and you know, we have these conversations with our friends from time to time, is why the positivity rate is so significant because it seems to us that as the pandemic comes to an end and, you know, hopefully in here in a few months, we'll be close to that. A lot less people will be getting the disease yet. The folks that go and get tested generally are the folks that either have the symptoms or have been exposed to somebody who had the symptoms. So you would expect a high number of those folks who get tested to test positive. So why is the positivity rate such an important metric as it relates to opening up again? I think your logic makes a lot of sense. I think this is extremely confusing. So if you think about it, a lot of people are being tested for other reasons than the fact that they were exposed or that they um, don't feel good. You know, 50% of the cases we test um, who test positive had some symptoms. 50% of the people we test and who who are positive did not have any symptoms. Some of those people were exposed and others were testing for other reasons, such as they're going to travel or they want to go to something and they don't want to expose anybody. So they want to just be tested. So a lot of people got tested for other reasons and it came up positive. So the, the positivity rate has, is what we would expect is as more people are getting vaccinated and we continue to have less numbers of people that get ill, which we're hoping the more they get vaccinated, the less people will end up being positive, that that positivity rate will come down because we will be testing people for other reasons still, and they should not show up positive like they are now. So um, overall, there should be less people that will become positive just because there'll be less people positive altogether, and it doesn't matter why they got tested or when they got tested. We talked a lot over the summer about folks who had been released from the hospital and then having problems with blood clots as a result of uh, having the disease. Are there new protocols 
obviously there are new protocols in place to try and eliminate that. Are those working and are, is that still happening quite a bit? So we have um, instituted protocols now that we knew, know about the blood clots. Remember in the beginning, we didn't know that that was going to be an issue. Um, and yes, it has worked in, as you know, in general, but there are still occasionally patients who have, have been ill and then six to eight weeks after recovery have come back in with some kind of blood clot, either a pulmonary embolism or uh, a deep vein thrombosis, which means a blood clot in the leg somewhere. Uh, so we are still seeing it occasionally. It's rare, but we still do see it. Last week, you surprised me by telling me that normally you'd have a lot of flu patients in the hospital and you've had none so far this year. And I assume that's still the case. My question is, were there a lot more flu shots given this year compared to a normal year? No, there were no more flu shots. There, well, let me say that again. No. For the hospital and the staff, there were no more flu shots because we man, it's mandatory for all workers to get flu shots, and everybody does, except for maybe 1% or 2% that can't get it for some medical reason. But in majority uh, were given. I do believe more of the people in the community, because of their fear of COVID, did choose to get flu shots. And that may have helped, but what I think helped more was the social distancing, the better hygiene, and the mask wearing, which, you know, uh, what we may be learning for the future that if we don't want to have flu in the future, that we should continue these kind of practices during flu season. So if you make the assumption that flu was down primarily because of social distancing and masking, does that indicate that the flu is not nearly as contagious as COVID is because that continues to be a problem? Well, that could be a, a theory. I don't have any scientific evidence, but you might draw that conclusion. It's not It's not a law yet, huh? It's just, it's it's just, just a, a crazy theory, theory by me. <laughs> Yeah, your theory, and I'll go along with your theory. <laughs> there you go. Um, so as vaccinations have been administered, and you've uh, been at the hospital administering them over a month now, has there been any new guidance that comes out slowly, you know, new groups of people who maybe shouldn't get vaccinated or groups that originally they suggested not get vaccinated that now can? Have, have things changed in terms of the guidance from the drug companies? From our knowledge, there's been no changes. I do know that in the beginning, uh, a few OBs were a little bit concerned about pregnant women getting the vaccines, but after looking at all the evidence, they all decided that it was much better for the pregnant women to get the vaccine than to not get the vaccine and risk getting COVID. So um, nothing else has changed. I still think there's a lot of debate out there. There's a lot of misinformation on the internet. Um, there's a lot of assumptions, but overall, uh, to our knowledge, people should continue to get their vaccines, and there's no more guidance of any group not being recommended to get vaccines. The last time we spoke, slightly more than 60% of the hospital staff had chosen to be vaccinated. So a two-part question. One, is that is that still pretty accurate? And two, now that you've reached out to folks that are not hospital workers, can you get an idea of what percentage of those folks have elected not to get the vaccination even though they're eligible? 
Well, I can tell you that the employees were up to 63% who have gotten the vaccine, and we anticipate more are still going to be signing up for it. A lot of people had questions and are waiting to see what other people do, and, they, and our doctors have been out trying to educate and I think have made a difference, and our employees are starting to pick up again getting vaccines, so we're hoping to continue to go up in that number. I don't have any numbers of people who are choosing not to get vaccinated. Um, it's too early to know that because we still don't even have hardly enough to go around yet for everybody that is eligible to get vaccinated. So, um, you know, hopefully as, as the data comes out, a lot of people are calling and wanting to be vaccinated. And I can tell you, yesterday we did over 700 vaccines, 200 at our Donners Grove site and 500 at our, um, our Seven Bridges site. And so we're expecting we'll even go higher than that as long as we have enough vaccine to go around. We're still waiting for, we, we get given an allotment of vaccines once a week, and, um, and we don't hear until Wednesday if we're going to get any for that week. Uh, so we, we're hoping we'll have enough to keep vaccinating our people. So tough question. We're currently in phase 1B of vaccinations, and those that are in that group include and not limited to first responders, those over the age of 65, education professionals, postal workers, grocery store workers. So my question is, who determines within that group how those are prioritized? Is that determined at, for instance, in your case, at the healthcare system level, or does the state or the county health department help you sub-prioritize that group? So it's really dependent on the healthcare system. It's not a centralized process and it's not been determined by the state of this. They only sub, um, did the subset by doing the phases, but they didn't say within that phase, who should we prioritize? For us at EEH, we decided to stratify our patients based on age and their comorbid conditions that would put them at risk, high risk for severe COVID disease. So we have been reaching out to those patients who fit into that um, high-risk disease and, um, and, and hoping that we can get those patients in as quickly as possible. As I said, the limiting factor, we would do everybody now right now if we had enough vaccines, and it's, it's a limiting factor is having enough vaccines. And what, what process did EE Health use? Was there a, a committee of medical professionals and non-medical professionals? How, how did that work to decide that priority? There is a vaccine subcommittee that is led by two physicians, Dr. Anker Single and Dr. Michelle Mazir, and they work together to, with infection control and nursing to come up with a uh, risk-satisfied system. Uh, those risks are severe disease are for people who are immunocompromised conditions, chronic lung disease, C, uh, cardiovascular disease, including hypertension, severe obesity, diabetes, chronic disease, kidney disease, uh, cerebrovascular disease, chronic liver disease, and tobacco use. And they pick those because those were the people who have the worst outcomes if they get the disease. And we are trying to help prevent people from getting in the hospital and dying from this condition. And so that's why they went with that. So, but it wouldn't be good advice to start smoking, would it? 
it would not be good advice to start smoking. You don't want to go at risk because you're probably under 65, and this is people over 65. <laughs> okay. Um, as it relates to, you know, somebody who has cardiovascular disease, to be considered to have the disease, do you have to have a very serious problem, or could that be something more minor that you might take medication to, to treat? You know, I, I don't know how they pulled all of the data, but I think it's having one or more conditions, and, you know, it's by the number of conditions that would move you up the list. So can you give me an idea of the type of questions that you might be asked on my chart when you go, you, you get your notification that go ahead, sign up, we're ready to give you the vaccine, and then you go through uh, a sign-up process. Will they ask you a bunch of questions either at that time or when you show up? And how is that? What do those questions look like? So they're basic, basic questions. Mostly just information about you know demographic information and uh, insurance information. So it's not a lot of complicated questions. It is you fill it all out on my chart ahead of time. Um, and then when you do that, you can also do your pre-check-in process as well. And you can get everything done before you ever get there, which makes it much faster and easier for you. Can you describe the process that, that goes on when you do arrive at the facility to get your vaccination? So patients, first of all, if they've done everything ahead of time in their MyChart and completed the e-check-in process, the actual vaccine process takes less than 10 minutes. And, um, and then you do have to stay around for about 15 to 30 minutes after getting the vaccine to make sure that you are um, not having any reactions to the vaccine. We, we make everybody say, because we want to make sure that there's no adverse reaction, that you would need some immediate medical attention for. And, um, and there's been very few people that have had any reaction that quickly with the vaccine that have had to have something done to help them out. Um, so when you get in line, you just come in and you uh, sign in that you're there and they, you just go through the line very quickly and they schedule you, you go to a table. When you sit down at the table, they bring the, the vaccine over when you're there because it's all on this very strict time frame about when the vaccine is, is um, taken out of refrigeration and put there the exact amount of the vaccine is there and available. And then they give you the injection. They give you materials to read so you understand what your side effects might be. And then um, they give you a card that gives the date of the vaccine that you were given. And then the date you would have to return for your next vaccine. I've, I've heard um, in the news, but I haven't verified that there are drive-up vaccination uh, locations. Um, are you aware of any of those, and are those really practical? Well, I've heard of them, and, and we've considered it, but right now this coming in is, is easier. The issue with practicality is not so much giving the vaccine as much as is monitoring you for the 15 to 30 minutes after the vaccine. So, you know, nobody's going to run from car to car to look and see how you're doing. It's much easier if you're in an area where we can watch everybody at once and then, you know, have somebody be able to leave after we've checked you out for that period of time. So right now, the way we're doing it, by having uh, dedicated areas for the vaccines and having it all pre-done ahead of time when you just walk up, it's much quicker and there's a lot of, there's ample parking so you're not walking long distances and you can get in, get your vaccine, get done and get out 
fairly quickly, but still get the right monitoring that's needed. So when when somebody does sign up for the vaccination, are they given a choice between Pfizer and Moderna? And I think I know the answer to this, but I want to ask it anyway. Well, um, I'm not sure why people care, except that one's three weeks and one's two weeks apart. That's basically the difference. Uh, I think the choice is really the time slot you're trying to sign up for. Because we are giving uh, our Modernas at Downers Grove and our Pfizer's at Seven Bridges. We don't do both at the same place because we want to have a good routine of when you have to come back. And so we don't want to get it mixed up at all. So, you know, because there's differences in when you have to return for the second one, we are keeping them separated. But, um, you know, if, if you want to wait for a particular one, it's the site that you go to that's going to be which one you get. Last week, you had reported that you had identified uh, patients in the neighborhood of 72,000 that fit into to that phase 1B category and that you at, at some point would have the capacity to administer 2,000 vaccinations daily, and that includes both first and second vaccinations. So my question is, have either of those numbers changed significantly other than the fact that some of those 72,000 have presumably been vaccinated at this point? Yeah, the 72,000 hasn't changed, and yes, some have been vaccinated already. We've given, between the hospital and the community, we have given out 10,000 vaccines already. So um, significant number of vaccines. We're not up to the 2,000 a day, not because we can't do it, just because we haven't had enough vaccines to be able to schedule 2,000 a day. And and so that's the limiting factor. As soon as we get enough available that we can do 2,000 a day, we will be doing that. And is that seven days a week or five days a week? or It's seven days a week. So in theory, you're hoping to get 14,000 doses Tomorrow, when you get your phone call or your email or whatever tells you how many you're getting, you're hoping for 14,000, right? We're hoping for that. What we're hearing is the maximum is probably 7,000. And um, and I think last week, I don't think we got any. So it, we're hoping 7,000 this week. It would be nice if it was 14,000, but I think it'll be seven if we get that. One last question uh, unrelated to uh, the vaccinations, and that is... Um, during the pandemic, I know operations have been a lot different at the hospital. So are a lot of your, your um, I would call them hospitality areas in the hospital open, like the Starbucks, the cafeteria, the gift shop, and the pharmacy? So um, the gift, let's start with the gift shop. So when the pandemic started, the gift shop was closed, but um, our employees were able to get flowers. Um, the, the employees of the gift shop that do the flowers, were able to come in and, and do flowers for patients uh, if the families called in the order. Um, and they also helped us when we did that daffodil project. The gift shop reopened with limited hours in September, but only to the visitors who were allowed in the building um, that were care partners or in there for a test. And the shop has been open adhering to social distancing, masking, and sanitizing after each volunteer shift. Um, and for the public, we've done some curbside pickup, which has worked out really well. So if they've called in and wanted something from the gift shop, we were able to use their credit card and then bring it out to them at the curbside. Our gift shop is open from 9 to 5. For the cafeteria and the Starbucks, 
Our cafeteria has stayed open throughout the pandemic because, um, you know, our employees all use the cafeteria as well. And um, only people that were allowed in the building for very strict reasons were able to go into the cafeteria. We did not um, stop people who were there as a care partner or people who were there for a test from going in the cafeteria. Uh, but it's been very limited number of people in the building, so limited people in the cafeteria. Additionally, the food and nutrition staff um, prepared thousands of meals to, uh, that were donated by the community to serve to our unit, so I thought that was great. And um, meal donations are still taking place today, so we've still had some very nice community members donating meals for our staff and our, our um, food service prepares all of that. Our food service uh, had changed the way they, they deliver food, so we no longer have a salad bar, everything is individually wrapped. Um, you know, there's the way we serve, the lines are all um, with safety in mind. And even in Starbucks, nobody's supposed to sit in the Starbucks. There are spots to stand in line so you're six feet apart. But Starbucks remained open for whatever people were allowed in the building and, all, and for employees during the entire pandemic. And our pharmacy, the only pharmacy we had was a Walgreens inside, and that closed as of um, August 31st. They decided to leave our hospital, so we do not have a pharmacy for patients inside the hospital. And that's a permanent closure? That is a permanent closure. Well, I know you mentioned Dr. Michelle Mazir a little earlier in the in the episode today, and uh, you're going to get a little bit of a rest next week, and Dr. Mazir is going to join us. So we'll uh, we'll try and tailor our questions to Dr. Mazir. So hopefully she's ready. I'm sure she will do a fantastic job. I'm telling you, Dr. Mazir, who is an emergency room physician, has been leading all of the vaccine efforts and is so extremely knowledgeable about everything related to these vaccines. So please stump her with some questions that are really, really hard. And um, I'm sure she'll have a great time. We'll make sure we do that. We uh, we look forward to visiting with her and uh, we're going to give you a much needed rest. So uh, look forward to talking to you again soon, Pam. Thank you so much. And you have a great week, week and enjoy your time with Michelle. Thank you. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown. The E-Town Lowdown, brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra, featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter.